the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. A look at Replant, how a dying church can grow again. He had such an experience. You had served as a missionary in, in Thailand. At what point and how, what was the process, uh, Dr. Devine, where they, they called you to uh, First Calvary? And when you got there, what kind of a shape did you find the place in? Well, I was just available uh, to serve as a supply preacher for churches that did not have a pastor or an interim pastor. And uh, there were people who knew that I had helped a troubling church, and they recommended me to this congregation. And I had a meeting with two of the leading lay uh, leaders there, and they they talked a really strong game of we need leadership. They were they were down to around oh 150 or so in a sanctuary, beautiful sanctuary that would seat 600. It looked like a little Spurgeon's Tabernacle plunked down in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, but once I got in there, I realized that, that this church was virtually unleadable. And so they talked about leadership, but really they, they lapsed into a state where they really uh, treated pastors as an employee with discreet duties. You know, preach a sermon, uh, do the wedding, do the funeral, do some pastoral care. But really, leadership was not on the cards at all. And I began to think about that, pray about that, and dream about, was there, is there a way that this congregation uh, could reverse its decline and start to reach people for Christ in that neighborhood again? In your book, you refer to them as members of the, of the lay cartel, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, there is the sense of, of really sabotaging pastoral leadership because they've essentially usurped pastoral responsibility and authority. And we hear this every once in a while, particularly seems to be uh, an excuse or pretext by so-called megachurches where we wish to have a, uh, there's an administrative pastor, there's a pastoral pastor, there's the preaching pastor, uh, and, and we've divided the duties up so much so that it doesn't at the end of the day seem to be one individual that is accountable to God or, or responsible for anything, and then all this little laity running around as if they're controlling a, a a small corporation or miniature fiefdom. And one of the, the developments that you see in many of these uh, these historic churches that are in decline is that um, they will uh, resist on the basis, the stated basis, that they are protecting a great tradition. And that was one of the means by which they thwarted attempts to lead at First Calvary. But one of the most paradoxical and surprising things that happened uh, in Kansas City at this church is that I began to study the history of the church. I found that they had taken radical decisions many times that were risky, that that required a lot of faith, that that were made in order to make the changes needed to advance the gospel. And so when I came to them with the, the notion that we might consider joining with another congregation that had demonstrated 
uh, leadership and effectiveness in a cultural context just like ours, and they would provide the leadership, uh, I was able to take their history and say, if we face this opportunity according to our tradition, we will be open to significant change. And it kind of turned the tables on the, you know, the self-appointed protectors of the tradition at that church. And, you know, I don't wish to, I want to get in trouble here with listeners and, and seem to come off as if I, I have utter disregard for tradition or uh, a sense of uh, a spiritual legacy or history. But at the end of the day, as we, as we measure it purely by the yardstick of Scripture, I mean, uh, am I wrong in saying that when we kind of distill it all down, it comes to a couple of basic uh, principles here, um, certainly the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, discipleship, evangelism. I I mean that that's kind of the uh, the primary role of the church, and all of that seems to be very forward looking. I I I know that the Lord certainly is appreciative if a church has had a history of uh, you know having great men preaching in pulpits, and many have been run one to Christ down through the decades or the centuries. But uh, why do I have a lingering sense of sort of a um, okay? And so, what have you done for me lately? As part of of the way <laughs> the Lord Himself might uh, might judge a church like that well the irony here was that i led the church to look forward by looking back just like you did you reached backward to the bible to to talk about what churches should do now and that's what i did with this congregation they had had a tradition of doing some really risky uh but but doctrinally sound faith-infused things in their past. And so the people who were who were touting themselves as the protectors of the tradition really weren't protecting the tradition. They were protecting recent uh, turf that they had occupied and the way decisions had been made over the last 20 years. But when you look at what had been happening over the last century, then that was a different kind of tradition. And you could find there many times in the church's history where they had made discipleship and evangelism and care for those who are hurting front and center. And so it wasn't a matter of don't look back, just look forward. There's like one passage in the Bible that says that, and people uh, gloss over the hundreds of passages where God says, remember, don't forget, remember, don't forget. And so the problem was not that they were looking back and remembering, but they weren't looking back far enough, deep enough, they weren't remembering the right things, and then facing the present and the future on the basis of the best of their past. There's a pastor right now in Chicago who's helping restart churches the way I did, and one of the things he says that I love is that when we restart churches, we don't erase their history. We have a shared history. But if that history is rooted in gospel advance, then they will not dig in 
and become a dysfunctional church that resists leadership. Well, and again, I, I have no objection to, to history. In fact, I'm a, a tremendous fan of it, and I believe standing on a, a, a tradition and a, a, a sense of uh, uh, connectedness, if you will, uh, down through the generations. I think that's wonderful and to be applauded and and to be stood upon. But you stand on that foundation and that rich history that should then drive you and compel you to move forward not to become paralyzed in simply saying gee look how great we used to be uh, that that never allows you to then have that forward-looking sense in terms of you know our our, our relationship with christ is one that continues to grow and expand uh, so too ought that process of outreach and evangelism and discipleship as we mentioned and so uh, that sitting of the history and allowing ourselves to become paralyzed where we're just stuck in it isn't that largely what a lot of these churches wind up dying from that's exactly what they die from, and uh, so that and that is what I talked to them about. But now, what I didn't tell them is that they're dying because they care about the tradition. Actually, what I did was expand their view of tradition, which then shamed them when they uh, didn't put the advance of the gospel first. And so I kind of uh, claimed the tradition ground rather than ceding it to those who were who had a selective view of it. And to the newer congregations, even if they're growing, let's say a new uh, church, uh, new leadership comes in and the church starts to grow, if they treat the past with uh, a case or or just something that's you know good for historical, you know trivial pursuit, then they end up with a with a maybe a, a temporary you know temporary life and and growth. But it ends up being very, very shallow because they don't, they don't, they don't really grasp that what they've been bequeathed uh, uh, f- from the past. And so I think there's a message about the past that both sides tend to be getting wrong. Mm. Uh, and uh, and the, the the biggest light that shines on that is that some of those who want to be sort of fiercely forward-looking. They keep turning back to uh, the reformers, turning back to the to the Bible, and I want to say, okay, now you're now you're talking my language. So we have to be cautious in finding that balance because some are oftentimes um, uh, too reticent to to move or look forward, and they wish to just singularly cling to the past. And others are too rapid or in a rush to to dispense with the past in the process of moving forward. And there's something to be said about the mixture of the two. Let's take a time out on that point. Dr. Mark Devine is with us. We are talking about church replanting, what that means, what that looks like, what that might mean to you and your congregation. Stay with us. We'll time out. Update on traffic, then back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation with Dr. Mark Devine. Let's get into some of your calls. We're talking about church replanting. We'll head off first to Hayward. Paul, good afternoon. Welcome. You're on KFAX with Dr. Mark Devine. Uh, Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. I've been um, checking out a lot of churches. I grew up in the Bay Area, grew up in a real large church, and have been looking around uh, and visiting churches for the last 10 years or so. And I'm seeing one thing that's common in them because they are declining. And I'm asking you, uh, Pastor, if if you see this. uh, One of the churches that I I attend regularly has about 1,200 people going there. And on one Sunday, the pastor asked by a raise of hands of 
how many people in 2013 had led anybody to the Lord. Less than 12 hands went up out of over 400 people. So what I'm starting to understand with this is that uh, people are going to uh, church as if they are, you know, out of duty. They're getting jobs. They're 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 uh, uh, sacred cow ministries that they occupy for 25 years and won't let anybody in, and and they're not learning to evangelize. And so this church that I've been attending now for nearly three years, uh, I've I haven't been invited to one person's house yet. Uh, or out to lunch, um, they had the glad handing thing and, and the you know shaking the hands, get up and shake your neighbor's hands, all that stuff. But but they're not teaching what Paul said about um, um, the gift of hospitality. Hmm. And the gift of hospitality, I think, is what's missing in the churches because if a pastor does leave a church all of a sudden, you know, for whatever reason, he dies. You know, whatever reason. The church should be able to maintain itself because the people have already learned how to really be a family as well as be a family to their their neighbors and their co-workers. In most cases, most neighbors don't even know a Christian lives next door. They've not, they've not, they're not being taught hospitality. So what, what do you see? Do you see that as being something? Wow, some really good observations. What about that, Dr. Devine? I want to tout a, a church in Columbus, Ohio, uh, related to this issue. It's called Xenos, and my uh, youngest son is a is a he's a student in in Columbus, and he's a member of that church. And they, for many years, have made discipleship uh, the heart and center of what they want to be about. They don't want anything to distract them from it, and it's a remarkable thing. And so they're they're most strong in the ways that, that this church that you've spoken of uh, is weak. And I will say this, the trend is that nominal Christianity is going to weaken, and the, and the church is, is losing market share, but the churches that survive uh, and thrive in this new environment are going to be stronger uh, because people are not going to use their time to be involved in, in, in churches uh, that are not really meaningful and relevant to them. And I, but I certainly believe that one of the great weaknesses is just what you've spoken about, and that is, can, can disciples make other disciples? Well, therein goes a real important key, because whether you talk about a church learning what hospitality is or, or the keys to evangelism, I mean, doesn't this really come down to the matter of, of a lack of real, proper discipleship? I mean, how many people show up to church every Sunday and they're kind of there out of, out of duty or out of habit or a sense of obligation, and yet they, they don't know a lot about the Savior that they allege to serve and have never had the experience of ever sharing their faith with anyone. Absolutely, but I do think that kind of thing is peaking because fewer and fewer people are willing to do that anymore. And so uh, people who are in that state, they they are dropping out of church uh, in, in droves. I'm finding some really exciting things happening with pastors who are in their 40s uh, that I, you know, were my students uh, 20 years ago. And uh, they're they're planting and building churches that are really a great co- contrast in these in these areas. And I'm so I'm really quite hopeful uh, that we're going to see uh, we're, we're going to see stronger churches uh, in these areas in the future. 
you are you getting a sense that the emphasis on and I'm going to meddle here for a moment. Uh, one of the things that I'm pretty good at. <laughs> uh, there's been such an emphasis on so-called uh, church growth seminars, seeker-sensitive churches. It seems as if we have to have a plan and formula, most of which comes down to simply good entertainment, or not so good, uh, as a means of increasing the size of our church, which a lot of pastors, if they're honest about it, realize we're really only increasing the church by shifting the sheep from one pasture to another. Are you suggesting then that you're starting to see a trend away from that and more back toward genuine discipleship, genuine evangelism, genuine church growth? Yes, and I, I believe that, um, you know, the, the church growth movement, beginning with seeker-sensitive and then uh, purpose-driven uh, and, and various things, that really the church growth movement has morphed and has been chastened. Uh, Bill Hybels himself, you know, uh, uh, launched a survey and, and an analysis of what was happening at his church. And he came out and said that all the problems that you decided are real, they are happening. And so this notion of um, sort of figuring out what the people can take and tailoring your sermons to it and then try to do the discipleship in some other room in the church is really not working. And so nowadays, I think that you really, knowing the size of a church doesn't tell you that much about it. Uh, as a serial interim pastor, that's what I'm seeing, that churches are very different. There's a lot of trial and error going on, and that uh, a lot has been learned uh, about uh, the ineffectiveness of watering anything down. And and perhaps the, the big lesson here needs to be unlearning of what we thought were so-called experts of teaching us how to do church right, and relearning the fact that all the keys that are necessary are right there in front of us. It's a little book. In fact, it's sold pretty well, I understand. If you're in the right spot, you even know the author personally. Uh, the book, of course, is called The Bible. Another one that I might recommend, uh, secondary to that, that's not a bad one either, particularly on this topic, is the one written by Dr. Mark Devine, Replants, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. And uh, we appreciate the insights into this uh, very complicated topic. And uh, Dr. Devine, hopefully we can persuade you to come back for more and we can dive a little bit deeper. And uh, again, our thanks to Dr. Mark Devine. The book, by the way, available through David C. Cook Publications or at uh, the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It was a number of years ago, traveling into China, when I first very clearly and distinctively became aware of the international problem of human trafficking. You know, we think of slavery and things of this sort from an American perspective, largely based on America's experience with the issue of slavery back in the 1800s. It was an eye-opening, startling experience for me to come to the realization that human trafficking is very much alive all over the world today, even taking place here in the United States. And it, it takes place in, in many fashions for a lot of different reasons. In China, walking along a street in a major city of the South one day and seeing a number of young girls, some of whom had obvious limbs missing, had been maimed, perhaps, I thought, in an accident of some sort. And in talking with a missionary friend and interpreter, I began to inquire about the alarming number of young ladies that I saw on this particular street that seemed to have a missing arm or a missing hand, something of this nature. 
And I inquired as to why this was, feeling it was kind of unusual. He went on to explain to me that, well, these are cast-offs. These are young girls who had been kidnapped from their home villages, brought into major cities, and sold as sex slaves, largely to tourist trade. And on occasions, these young girls would fail to cooperate, would perhaps try to uh, turn their captors into the authorities, and so as retribution, they would typically cut off an arm or a hand to maim them in one fashion or another as a means of defiguring them, making them less desirable, handicapping their ability to earn a living, and ultimately punishing them for not being cooperative with the sex traffickers. That opened my eyes to what has become a global problem. And as we talk about this topic today, I'm joined by Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations on behalf of International Justice Missions. They direct casework operations around the world in places from Latin America to Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, developing intervention strategies and advocating with local and national authorities to address the problem of human trafficking around the globe. And Sean, great to have you on the program today. Craig, it's wonderful to be with you. Thank you. That experience that I had in China a number of years ago, I sadly have come to discover, was not a unique and rare one, but in fact is taking place in more and more places around the globe today, even in so-called developed nations. Tell us why. Well, uh, there, the main problem, is, as we see it, is in uh, countries where the laws against these crimes are not enforced at all. In other words, the traffickers, the criminals, the pimps who are uh, uh, selling these children have no fear of any sanction, no fear of any re- repercussion, no fear of any negative consequences, and so they engage in this practice with impunity, despite the fact that in almost every country uh, today it's against the law. It's against the law to sell children for sex. And yet, in spite of that, of course, we see the sex trafficking trade uh, growing pretty significantly. Of course, we've perhaps caught a special or two of what goes on in, in places such as uh, parts of Southeast Asia, um, and countries that we're all too familiar with, Thailand, for example. And as this sex trafficking trade is, is growing and developing, um, talk to us a bit about, number one, how girls get even pulled into all of this. And, and why it seemingly is being allowed to flourish in some countries. Right. So the children that get involved typically um, are migrating. So they're, they're, they're from very poor and impoverished areas. And someone comes to their village, somebody from their same ethnic group, uh, they generally refer to them as an auntie, um, they come to the village, maybe they're from the village or a nearby village, and they, they say, tell their parents, you know, I can help your daughter find a good job in the city. The daughter feels a debt of gratitude to her parents uh, in many of these cultures, and, and she's obligated to care for them. And so she wants to help her parents, so she'll go with this auntie. And, and then the auntie, uh, it turns out, is a trafficker. And rather than give her a good job or take care of her, this young woman will be sold into a brothel. And once there, um, she's she's locked away. She's she's kept from going for help. But even if she could go for help, usually she doesn't speak the local language. Um, she sees the police coming by the brothel and collecting money every week. So there's really nowhere for her to turn. 
She has no access to her family. They're from a village up in the hills or far, far away or even in another country in many cases. And she's literally trapped. And then uh, if she refuses to participate, if she refuses to cooperate, they'll deny her food. Um, in many cases, she'll be beaten. She'll be forced to watch, watch pornography. And just over time, they will wear her will down until she submits. She submits herself to this abuse um, that goes on day after day after day after day. And these girls, Sean, literally get trapped into this scenario. They're far away from home. They're embarrassed about the circumstances that have taken place. And quite often, those that are engaged in the sex trafficking threaten these girls and their families, don't they? Absolutely, yes. And so, you know, the trafficker will tell the girl, I paid good money for you. And if, if you don't cooperate, then, you know, I will find your family. Or there'll, there'll be stories of girls who have attempted to run away only to be brought back and killed in front of the other girls to frighten them into submission and cooperation. It's pretty horrifically manipulative, isn't it? I mean, aside from the horror of what they're drawing these young girls into, quite often, as you suggest, uh, they are trying to better their station in life, maybe move from a village into the city with the hope and promise of earning more money to take care of their family. Maybe there's somebody in the family that's ill. They need uh, money because of it additional medical expenses, things of this sort. We've even seen cases of human sex trafficking taking place where women and men sometimes are being lured with promises of of immigration into the United States, and if you come over, we'll help uh, pay your way and get you into the country, things of this sort, only to find out that once they arrive here, not having any contacts, having no command of the language, suddenly they're being forced into sex slavery. Exactly, yeah, and they have you know, their their passport, if they had one, has been taken away, so they're in the country illegally, and they feel there's nowhere to turn. If they go to the authorities, they'll be arrested for, you know, illegal immigration. We've seen the stories, as I mentioned earlier, coming out of places like Thailand, the Philippines, other so-called even uh, sex tourism destinations. And certainly I think there's a growing sense of awareness of the problem globally. But I'm curious, Sean, based on your years of involvement with the international justice missions, I understand you, in fact, came out of private practice in your own law firm to be involved in this ministry organization. Are we hearing more of these stories simply because the reporting is getting better, or are we hearing more of these stories because the horrificness of this crime is on the increase? It's hard to say exactly. There certainly is a great deal uh, more reporting and a great deal of more attention being uh, focused on this issue. But at the same time, what you have is massive economic migration happening um, as people in more and poorer countries move towards those who are more wealthy, where there's more jobs, and this is a this is part of globalization. It's part of a global phenomena. At, at the same time, more and more roads are getting into these villages, you know, that have been formerly isolated and safe, and by their isolation, and so then the traffickers have access to more and more uh, people to to move into the sex trade. So, it's a combination of of both greater attention on the issue, and again, I I do think that's expanding as the process of globalization and the process of economic migration uh, increases. Talk to us a bit about the role that International Justice Missions is taking in not only addressing increased awareness of this, uh, creating a more hostile environment 
for those in, engaged in the trafficking, in the slavery end of, of all of this, but then, too, uh, the hope that your organization is providing and helping to get these women, and sometimes men, out of this terrible lifestyle. Right. So when in our offices, so, for example, I worked in an office in Thailand, also in an office in the Philippines. So we'll do investigations, and we have undercover investigators that will go out and locate these establishments that are selling children for sex. We'll document the identity of those children, the identity of the individuals that are selling them. Um, we'll, we'll bring that back. We have a team of lawyers that will review it. We'll write a report, and then we'll go to the local authorities and, the, and advocate with the authorities. And the evidence that we bring, of the it's a violation of law, but now they have such strong evidence of it that they can't deny it's happening. And so we'll push them and push them until they take action. And then the, the, the object there is to ensure that the girls are rescued and that the individuals that were exploiting them are brought to justice. So there's an arrest, uh, criminal prosecution of the traffickers and the pimps and the brothel owners, hopefully leading to conviction, a, a sentence in prison. And then for the girls, we have teams of social workers that work with them and different um, homes. We call them aftercare homes, working on dealing with the uh, consequences of the abuse, both in terms of their emotional health, their spiritual health, and trying to find out whether they can return home, whether that's a viable option. If not, what would be a viable life option for them and giving them education and skills so that they can have a have new life. Oh, so there's just a multiplicity of levels that need to be addressed. And when we come back, I want to talk a bit about what's happening in terms of government involvement to try to deal with this, where the judicial system is, both here stateside and internationally, and most importantly, what the church, the body of Christ can be doing in partnering with and cooperating with organizations like International Justice Missions um, to help not only raise awareness, but also provide a way out. For so many women all over the globe that have been caught up in human trafficking. I'm Craig Roberts here in tune with Lifeline. A brief time out. Back to more of our conversation with Sean Litton, Vice President Field Operations for International Justice Missions, as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special guest, Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations with International Justice Missions. You can get more information, by the way, on the organization online at IJM.org. That's IJM.org. We're talking about the plight of human trafficking around the globe. And, you know, it's interesting because so often when we think of slavery, we put it contextually in America historically into what happened here in the United States and many parts of the globe back in the 1800s. And it seems to be somewhat satisfying to think that we've dealt with the issue here at home and therefore it's no longer a problem. It's no longer our problem. But is it? Well, it is, in fact, at many levels. Not only does it continue to be a global problem, but in fact, in many respects, it's our problem, both in terms of the fact that many of these women that are being kidnapped or given promises of a new life in America brought here to be engaged, and they find out later, in the sex trade and then literally end up getting trapped in that lifestyle with no avenue to turn and here illegally, fearful of seeking out any assistance from police or the authorities. And then moreover, Growing numbers of people who travel abroad to engage in so-called sex tourism. 
It's a sad, sad state of affairs, and yet one that is um, reporting perhaps gets a better awareness increases is something that all of us need to be more educated upon and do something to bring justice to these people. Sean Litton is with us. And, Sean, let's talk a bit about um, the problem, whether it goes from um, sexual assault, bonded labor. I mean, there's a variety of reasons why this kind of human trafficking is taking place. And as we suggest, it's not just a problem in the West. It's a problem uh, globally. Even the continent of Africa, we're seeing this take place. Yeah, it is a global uh, phenomenon, and it's it's important to understand that when we talk about human trafficking, we're not just talking about sex, sexual slavery or sex trafficking. It's any type of for, uh, labor without consent. We're basically talking about slavery. It takes many different forms. So it could be working on a cocoa plantation in West Africa or working on a fishing boat, forced little boys forced to work in a fishing boat in Ghana, or you know, it could be young girls in brothels in Southeast Asia or um, people working in a brick kiln or a rice mill or a rock quarry in India. So it takes many different forms, but it's all slavery. Even we've seen a recent increased awareness of the so-called uh, blood diamond trade, too. Mm, yeah, that's another area where anytime you know there's a, a lack of law enforcement and a permissive atmosphere where people need labor, it's always going to, you know, slave labor is always cheaper, right? But if there's no law enforcement, then there's no reason for the people um, who own the facility to, to pay. So they can just trick people into it. There's a plentiful supply of people who are desperate for work. This is a problem taking place at many tiers in the West, in the developed nations, in developing nations, and one that I think needs to be dealt with at a variety of levels. Talk to us a bit about the role, and uniquely, that IJM is playing in all of this. Well, the first thing that we're doing is, is in the places where we're working, in Southeast Asia, and in India, and in Africa, and Latin America, we're basically shining a, a, a flashlight right on the issue, but... At, a lot of people will say there's terrible trafficking, but to actually go in, to work undercover, to actually document the situation, to show exactly how it's happening, and then to collaborate with the local justice authorities to take action, to take action against the perpetrators and to ensure the rescue and restoration of the victims. But that's not enough. It's just not enough to rescue, um, rescue the girls. You've got to do something that prevents other girls, other young women, other people from experiencing this abuse. In order for that to happen, there needs to be a reliable deterrent. There has to be an end to impunity. And so we work with in building the capacity and the will of the local justice system to actually enforce the law and extend the protection of the law um, to, all, to all the vulnerable young women in the, in the area so that, you know, that the brothel owners um, move away from from working with women against their will, from, from trafficking in young children. Is this casual, or are there degrees where it's highly organized and coordinated? I, I ask that question because there seems to be so many layers of this web that's taking place to, you know, kidnap women in one part of the world, manage to escond them and get them into countries like the United States, and then get them into a system over here, it would seem to me that at certain levels, uh, Sean, this isn't very casual, but in fact, highly organized. Yeah. So it's true that it, there's a full range. So, for example, in the United States, it is highly organized. You're dealing with or organized crime. Same thing in Eastern Europe. 
in Asia, there are places where the criminals are highly organized. In other places, it's it's just a simple brothel that's being run by, you know, a, a local businessman, et cetera, a local pimp. Um, in in terms of the the labor trafficking, it could just actually be the regular business practice of that area is that you you trick people into working in your brick kiln or your rice mill, and then you you hold them there. And you never let them leave, and you and you pay them just enough to buy enough food to live, and it's a regular business practice. So it, it's not it's not even seen as a crime, even though it's against the law. I know that your organization has been successful at creating creating some pretty successful pilot programs in certain parts of the world. I know specifically in Metro Cebu in the Philippines over the last several years, um, you, in working with local authorities and spreading out in, in, throughout the region, uh, have been successful, I understand, Sean, in seeing a reduction in child sex trafficking of nearly 80%? Yeah, that's true. Um so in that in that case, um, it was a pilot project, and there was a uh, a measurement taken by a group of international criminologists to get a, a level of what was the level of abuse happening in the city, and then we instituted our program, basically increasing the capacity of law enforcement, the capacity of local prosecution, the judiciary, working with aftercare facilities to increase the level of services going to victims and. And then uh, three years later, when they came back and did another measurement to see the effect of the arrests and the rescues and all the rehabilitation, they found 80% fewer girls being exploited in the city and in the metropolitan area, and 75% fewer establishments that had any children at all. It was a a pretty amazing result. In addition to not only reducing the atmosphere that that allows this typically to to flourish, providing victim relief, aftercare, uh, accountability then, too, for the perpetrators of all of this, um, long-term transformation, do you get the sense that we're starting to make some headway and moving in the right direction? Absolutely. In the Philippines, for example, so after we instituted that project and the government saw the results, they came to us and said, can you help us on a national level? And and the, the the key issue with all these projects is, are they sustainable? In other words, unless it's the government itself doing it, no organization like IJM or any other organization can sustain it on their own. But in this case, the Philippines took the model in Cebu and is now replicating it throughout the country with their own money, their own resources. They're setting up new police units. They're expediting the prosecution of trafficking cases. They're increasing the capacity of the aftercare systems. The government's doing this on their own, and so we're seeing the ripple effect of just one model of showing how how it can work to increase the, the 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 enforcement of the law can reduce the problem. And now it's being replicated throughout the entire country. And then the other countries where we're working, we're seeing the same effect. That gradually, it's happening at a, a slower rate, but gradually, um, as people see the results, they they want they want to put more energy into it. And, of course, your organization is helping to spearhead a lot of this, educate folks. And toward that end, we mentioned the fact that you are in town speaking at a conference dealing with this very issue. If ultimately, Sean, folks want to find out more about how they can get involved in partnering with IJM to make a difference and the role that the church needs to be playing, quite frankly, from the the standpoint of our justice obligation, what kind of resources are available through the IJM website toward that end? Well, the the website is by far the best place to start. There's also um, a, 
an app you can download if you have a smartphone. Um, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Um, there's a, there's a book called Good News About a Justice that you can find you know through through the website or th- or through a um, a bookseller um, that kind of lays the foundation for what we're doing, what the biblical foundation is for seeking justice for the poor and the oppressed. Um, you can become a freedom partner. You can support the organization financially. You can pay for the rescue that the poor cannot afford to buy for themselves. Um, you can sign up to receive our uh, upcoming holiday gift catalog. You can give the gift of rescue to people. And uh, most importantly, and what I'd love for people to do, is join us as prayer partners. Um, you can do that through the website, and then you'll get updates on kind of where we're working, the obstacles we're running against up against, and you can help us through prayer. You can actually pray for these operations that we're trying to get done to rescue these people. Absolutely. But ultimately, we want to encourage folks to not only get educated, get involved prayerfully, but get behind supporting the organization. They're working in countries uh, globally um, on a variety of continents. We mentioned Latin America, Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia. You can get more information again online at IJM. That's for International Justice Missions, IJM.org. And Sean Litton, Vice President, Field Operations for International Justice Missions. We appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Craig. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.